0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp and FabFitFun. The case I'm covering today is one that was suggested by my husband, Steve, who's a huge NBA basketball fan. It's the third and final episode in my sports-related murder series. Before we get into the case, I want to make a quick announcement. I recently connected with Cheryl McCollum, or MAC, as many people call her. Cheryl is a CSI out of Atlanta, Georgia, and the founder and director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. CCIRI is an Atlanta-based nonprofit that assists in solving major crime cold cases. I encourage you to check out the organization's website, at coldcasecrimes.org to learn more about how they're helping to solve cold cases and bring some sense of peace for victims and their loved ones. I am so impressed and encouraged by the work that CCIRI is doing that I've decided to donate a portion of my Patreon proceeds to the organization. Beginning in January of 2020, I'll be donating one full month of my Patreon proceeds four times per year. Currently, I offer Patreon supporters perks like bonus content, shout-outs on the podcast, murderish merchandise like t-shirts, hats, stickers, and more. Going forward, anyone who becomes a murderish Patreon supporter will also be donating to a very worthwhile organization that is helping to solve cold cases. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a Patreon supporter, head over to patreon.com murderish. That's patreon.com murderish. The case I'm covering in this episode takes us to the open sea near the island of Tahiti in French Polynesia. Two young lovers were sailing around the world together in search of something more meaningful than the hustle and bustle of everyday life. They made plans to go to Honolulu, Hawaii, but they would never make it. The couple and their boat captain went missing and to this day, some of the details surrounding their disappearance remain a mystery. Join me as I walk you through the disappearance and likely murder of former NBA basketball player Bison Dele. Carson Williams was born on April 6 of 1969 in Fresno, California. He would later change his name to Bison Daley for reasons that we'll get into a little later. I'll refer to Brian by his chosen name, Bison Daley, throughout this episode. Bison was the younger of two children to parents Patricia Ann Hickman Williams and Eugene Gino Williams Jr. Bison's brother, Kevin Eugene Williams, was two and a half years older. Bison and Kevin's father, Gino, was a member of the music group, The Platters. Patricia and the boys traveled with Gino for a time while he toured with the group. Unfortunately, Patricia and Gino's marriage began to crumble and the couple separated in 1970. They divorced a short time later, and Patricia moved away from Fresno. Patricia later remarried and moved her family back to Fresno, but this wouldn't last. Patricia and her second husband divorced when Bison was in 7th grade and Kevin in ninth. Both Bison and Kevin would later tell others that their stepfather was abusive to them, both physically and mentally. The boys said their stepfather would yell at them and put them down right in front of their mother, who would not defend them. Patricia claims to have no knowledge of this and remembers their stepfather as very strict but not abusive. Bison attended St. Monica Catholic High School in Santa Monica, a beach town in Southern California. In school, Bison was a star track athlete and began playing basketball during his sophomore year. The following year, he and his older brother, Kevin, moved to Las Vegas to live with their father, Gene. In Vegas, Bison went to Bishop Gorman High School. His basketball coach, Mike Adris, later said about Bison that during high school, He didn't show the personality that would set him apart from other players in the NBA, but he was very nice and got along well with others. Coach Adris said about Bison, For a new kid at a new school in a new town, he adapted very well. Everybody loved him on the campus. His basketball skills were beginning to show during this time as well. Bison wouldn't stay in Las Vegas for very long. For his senior year in high school, He went back to California to live with his mother. Kevin decided to stay in Las Vegas with their father for a while longer. During his senior year in high school at St. Monica, Bison was named as McDonald's All-American player for his success on the basketball court. He hadn't been a very big name before, partially because he got a late start playing basketball. During his senior year in high school, however, colleges all over the country took notice of him. Bison ultimately accepted a scholarship to play basketball all the way across the country at the University of Maryland. While he played ball at Maryland, Bison earned the honor of Atlantic Coast Conference Freshman Player of the Year. His time at Maryland, however, was short-lived. After some conflict with his coach, Bob Wade, Bison decided to leave the team. Bison referred to his issue with Coach Wade as philosophical differences. After leaving Maryland, Bison transferred to the University of Arizona. His new teammates were amazed to see such a tall, thick player win sprints against the fastest guy on the team, point guard Kenny Lofton. Lofton would go on to enjoy a long and successful career as a major league center fielder. Bison's personality was starting to show itself by this time. Kevin O'Neill, an assistant coach at Arizona, said about Bison, the rest of the guys would be out looking for keggers, and he was hosting a tuxedo and ball gown party in his room. O'Neill also said that while Bison's teammates were filling bathtubs full of ice and beer, Bison would be visiting an art gallery or a winery. Bison was different, not at all your typical jock. Bison was also into playing other sports besides basketball. Former Arizona teammate Matt Muhlenbach said, One year, we were out at the pool of the apartment complex, and there comes Brian walking by in a full polo outfit, this 6 foot 11 black guy in the boots, the pants, the helmet, everything. It was clear that Bison was unique. He was more of an old soul who seemed to think deeper and more philosophically than his peers. Jim Roseboro, the associate head coach at Arizona, said that Bison would ride around town in an old convertible with his tall body sitting high over the dashboard and windshield. Coach Roseboro said, "I liked Brian. He was a unique individual. I don't mean that in a negative sense. I think he was well liked by his teammates. They got a kick out of his individuality. He was never malicious or non-team oriented." After his senior basketball season, Bison was drafted by the Orlando Magic with the 10th pick of the 1991 NBA draft. In his rookie season, Bison came off the bench and earned valuable playing time. Although this should have been an exciting time in Bison's life, he was struggling with something beyond his control. It was during this time that Bison began to show signs of clinical depression, which was not a topic many people discussed openly during that time, especially not an NBA player. In the 1992 NBA draft, Orlando had the first pick and selected star center Shaquille O'Neal from Louisiana State University. The organization was excited about having O'Neill at center and Bison at power forward. Unfortunately for Bison, during his second season, his depression worsened and he was limited to playing in only 21 games out of the 82-game season. Bison's depression led him to some dangerous situations that could have ended his life. During one incident, Bison overdosed on sleeping pills. Another time, he crashed his car into a pole. Bison said that these incidents were related to him not taking to the city of Orlando very well, and because he kept himself on a diet of only 2,000 calories per day, not knowing that amount of calories was dangerously low for someone of his size and activity level. In a 1998 Sports Illustrated interview, Bison spoke about the incident, saying, I grew up a vegetarian, and I wanted to be super healthy. Of course, I wasn't consulting anyone on this. The lack of protein and iron in my diet finally ran me down. Pat Williams, senior vice president for the Orlando Magic at the time, said of Bison during that season, he just couldn't function, he couldn't suit up, as a basketball player, as a human being, and he was put under the care of two psychiatrists. Eventually, Pat Williams said the team, decided we're not equipped to handle this, we just can't do this, and with that, the team traded Bison to the Denver Nuggets. Bison played the next two seasons with Denver, then one year with the Los Angeles Clippers before becoming a free agent prior to the 1996-97 season. Bison was hoping for a lucrative, long-term contract. Unfortunately, the teams with whom he negotiated thought he was asking for too much money, and he went most of that season without a job. In early April of 1997, with only nine games left in the regular season, Bison was signed by the Chicago Bulls. This would prove to be a pivotal moment for Bison, as he went on to help them win their fifth championship during the 1990s. Friends would later say that this was the only time they ever saw Bison happy during his NBA career. After the 1996-97 season, Bison got the contract he had been hoping for the previous year. The Detroit Pistons signed him to a seven-year, $50 million contract. Bison played well during the first year of his contract. The following year, in 1998, Bison decided to change his name unofficially from Brian Williams to Bison Daley. His new name honored his Cherokee and African American heritages, as the name Daley originated from the Yorubian language of Nigeria. During the 1998 99 seasons, a player's strike shortened the season to only 50 games. Once the strike ended, Bison played the entire season, and again, he played well. Some friends would later say they believed the player's strike had an effect on Bison that led him to make a decision a few months later that would shock the entire NBA. Just before the Detroit Pistons began training camp for the 1999-2000 season, 30-year-old Bison Daly announced, without any warning, that he was retiring. He still had five years and $36 million left on his NBA contract. Bison delivered the news to management in Detroit. Once they got over their shock, they pleaded with him to reconsider. The Pistons were a rising team, and Bison was one of their better players. They would need him if they had any chance to win a championship. Besides, they told him, He still had five years and all that money left, and he'd lose it all if he walked away now. Bison did not waver. They could keep the money. He was done. Jed Buchler, who had played with Bison at the University of Arizona and in the NBA, was absolutely shocked just like everybody else, but he wasn't angry. Bison had always been a free spirit and didn't have the burning passion that a lot of NBA players do. Buechler said that some Detroit players and other members of the organization had already been getting tired of Bison's tendency to let his mind wander. Buechler said, One of the criticisms was that he wasn't there all the time mentally, and that frustrated a lot of coaches and owners, especially since he'd show these great flashes of talent. It made it harder when five minutes later he was out in space. Orlando's senior VP, Pat Williams, spoke about how Bison's personality made things difficult for the organization during his first two years in the NBA. Williams said, We just couldn't reach him. You never got the feeling that he loved to play, that it was a real high priority for him. He happened to be six foot eleven with some ability. His real joy was just being a free spirit. Unlike a lot of athletes, for Bison, Money had never been all that important to him. During his time in the NBA, when his team made the playoffs, Bison would often ask that his playoff share be split amongst the ball boys, janitors, or clubhouse attendants. He was known to be very generous. When one of the secretaries in the Pistons' front office retired, the players were asked to give $100 each to buy a gift for her, not Bison. Instead, he invited her to his home to cook a gourmet dinner just for her. As she was leaving, he gave her an envelope that contained $10,000 cash. Former Pistons coach Doug Collins said that Bison also gave the coaches and team executives expensive Christmas gifts. His extreme generosity is yet another trait that set Bison apart from most people. Dwight Mainly became Bison's agent after the two of them met at the MTV Music Awards in New York. Mainly agreed that Bison didn't have a love for the game like most players do. Mainly said about Bison, basketball wasn't the whole world to him. He had a lot more interests, a lot more self fulfilling to do than just saying he was out on the basketball court. Rick Sund, who was the Pistons' general manager when Bison decided to retire, gave him credit for leaving the game instead of showing up just to collect a paycheck. Sund said, The thing I really respected with Bison was that once he got to the point where he couldn't be competitive anymore, he didn't try to finagle things or lie about it. He just said, It'd be wrong for me to try to make the money. Bison quit before training camp began in the 1999-2000 season. If he had showed up to camp and stayed with the team until after the regular season began, he would have received $6 million up front. Bison could have retired a week or two into the season and kept the $6 million, but Bison followed his heart, not the money. Bison's hobbies were bountiful. Into music like his dad, Bison played several musical instruments. He also loved to travel, and he even learned to fly, eventually earning his pilot's license. He had never enjoyed the nightlife like most NBA players. Bison didn't enjoy going to clubs, and he didn't like chasing women. He loved being out on the ocean and taught himself how to sail. When he played ball in Detroit, Bison had a huge aquarium installed in his house, complete with tropical fish. During the winter, when the weather was gloomy, Bison would put on snorkeling gear and swim inside of his aquarium amongst the fish. This made him feel better temporarily. The Detroit winners really took a toll on Bison's mental state. After his retirement from the NBA, Bison traveled to Beirut, Lebanon, where he stayed with Ahmed El-Husseini, a friend of his from the University of Arizona. El-Husseini owned a water purification plant in which Bison had invested. He stayed with El-Husseini in Lebanon for four months. During that time, the Pistons tracked Bison down and desperately wanted him to come back to the team. El Husseini received phone calls from Detroit owner Bill Davison and others from the organization. Bison's agent, Dwight Mainly, also called him in an attempt to get Bison to return to the NBA. Bison was done with basketball. Instead of talking to his former team, he left Lebanon and traveled by himself to Indonesia, the Philippines, New Zealand, and then to Australia. When El Husseini caught up with him in Australia, He said Bison had bought a huge truck with a mini-kitchen in it. He said Bison was traveling and sleeping inside the truck during his travels. After El husseini went back home to Lebanon, Bison stayed in Australia. He bought a catamaran that he named Hakuna Matata, which means no worries in Swahili. In early 2000, ESPN writer Tom Cohn wanted to do a story on Dele. Cohn found out that Bison was living in the Australian outback with a friend. The two of them were sleeping in the bed of a pickup truck by the ocean, hiking and surfing and enjoying time away from everything. Bison did have email access, though. He received an email from Tom Cohn asking if he could meet up with Bison in Australia to write about him. Bison was not having it. He emailed back to Cohn, Thanks for the interest, but a life lived is a life explained. There is so much pressure and stress that comes along with everyday life, and that stress can interfere with our happiness. It can be very helpful to seek counseling when these issues arise, but meeting with someone on their schedule and at their location isn't always convenient. That's where BetterHelp Online Counseling comes in. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, relationships, trauma, LGBTQ matters, and more. And of course, anything you share is completely confidential. BetterHelp is unique in that they make counseling services convenient by offering counseling online through video chat, and you can chat with your counselor via text message too. If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, simply request a new one at any time at no charge. Not only can you receive counseling from the convenience of your own home, BetterHelp services will not break the bank. Murderish listeners can get an extra discount by going to BetterHelp.com Murderish and entering promo code Murderish. That's BetterHelp.com Murderish and use promo code Murderish for 10% off your first month. In 1991, Bison met a man named Patrick Byrne through their mutual friend Ahmed El Husseini. Although his new acquaintance was almost 7 feet tall and very athletic, Patrick would not learn until months later that Bison was an NBA player. Like Bison, Patrick just wanted to live life to the fullest. He had been diagnosed with testicular cancer at the age of 22, and after three years of treatment, and while in remission, he decided that he was going to live life every day as if it was his last. Patrick took up cycling, going all the way across the country. He became a black belt in Taekwondo and got his PhD from Stanford. Patrick and Bison were cut from the same mold. Together, the two friends took long cycling trips. They earned their pilot's licenses together. They skydived and rented go-karts. Patrick said that his friend Bison was always drawing attention from people, particularly women. Patrick later said about Bison, Everyone wanted to hang out with him. You'd meet up, and there was Eddie Vedder or Billy Corgan. Patrick said that women would leave notes at Bison's door. One of the notes read, Mr. Williams, you don't know me. I work in the hair salon nearby. I would do anything to spend one night with you. Anything. I've told my husband. I don't care if he leaves me. Bison wasn't interested. Bison did, however, date actresses, models, and singers. For a time, Bison and Madonna were an item. Patrick said that Bison found Madonna to be self-absorbed. After a while, whenever she'd call, Bison would just hand the phone to Patrick, who'd end up listening to her talk about whatever. After Bison left the NBA and went to Lebanon to stay with El Husseini, Patrick said he received an email from the Los Angeles Lakers organization that read, If Brian is interested in returning to the NBA, he should get in touch with Phil or Lakers general manager Jerry West. They need and want him and start with high respect for Brian as a man and as a player. Patrick forwarded the email to Bison, who apparently never responded. Rather than being surprised that he just quit the NBA when he did, Patrick said he was surprised that Bison stayed as long as he did. Patrick said of Bison, His great fear was to be another 40-year-old NBA player, paying the rent by doing car commercials. As Bison was sailing and exploring in the Pacific, Patrick became increasingly busy with his own work. In 1999, Patrick purchased an online company called D2 Discounts Direct, which sold surplus and returned items on the internet. Patrick eventually renamed the company Overstock.com. With the new company, Patrick was working a lot of hours. He remained in touch with Bison, but only through email. While he was still playing in the NBA, Bison met a woman named Serena Carlin. The two of them met through Serena's roommate, who had dated Bison in high school. From the jump, Serena and Bison were very taken with each other. There was an electricity they both felt the second they laid eyes on each other. Besides being very attracted to one another, they had a lot in common. They were both very thoughtful, artistic, and shy. Bison and Serena dated off and on, but Bison's hectic schedule with the Pistons caused issues in their relationship. Serena didn't like that Bison could never be in one place for long because he had to travel with the team. Their relationship finally ended, and Serena went on to work different jobs in California. She worked in retail for a bit, as well as other jobs, but didn't really like any of them all that much. Eventually, Serena decided to venture into selling real estate. Serena's mother, Gail Olgren, later said about her daughter, she was trying to make a go of it, of something. Serena was always looking to find her place in the world, trying to figure out what it all meant. Serena eventually moved back to New York City, living in Manhattan, where she began taking real estate courses to get her license. Although she was good at her job, Serena just never took to it. Selling real estate had lost its appeal. After the terrorist attacks on September 11th, Serena got severely depressed, and she no longer wanted to stay in New York. Although they had broken up, Bison called Serena in December of 2001. He'd been worried about her and wanted to see how she was doing. The two of them began talking on a regular basis after that. By this time, Bison had purchased a catamaran, and he asked Serena to come visit him in Australia. Eventually, she decided to join him for two weeks. Two weeks turned into five weeks. When she returned to New York, Serena and Bison continued to talk, and the relationship grew again. Bison asked Serena to come back and join him for good. The two of them could stay on his catamaran for as long as they wanted, sailing all over the world. Serena, however, would need some convincing. This was a big commitment, and she wanted to make the right decision. She was also saddled with a lot of bills, and she didn't know how she'd pay them if she just up and left her life in New York. Not long after Bison asked her to join him on his boat, Serena received a letter in the mail. It was from Bison. When she opened the envelope, there was a check for $50,000 and a note that read, This is what I think of your financial difficulties. Still torn, Serena spoke with her mom about what she should do. Bison was special, not like other men she'd met. They were so much alike. Serena's mother, Gail, later said about Serena, she was scared. She'd never been in a relationship with that degree of commitment. She didn't know how it was going to be. Frankly, she didn't know him all that well. Still, Gail encouraged Serena to explore the relationship with Bison further, saying, You don't want to wake up at age 40, being a workaholic and wondering what you missed. Serena finally made her decision. She was going to pack up and join Bison to travel the world. Serena told her family she'd be leaving to sail around the world for a year with Bison. She met him in New Zealand in February of 2002. In her communications with friends and family during her travels, Serena was very happy, and sounded like she had finally found what she had always been in search of, a meaningful relationship. Serena's bliss, however, would soon turn into a nightmare. Serena Carlin was born on April 4th of 1972 in New York City to Stuart Carlin and Gail Olgren. Serena's paternal grandfather was Houston Smith, a religious scholar who wrote many books on religious studies. Smith was also a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, MIT in Boston, Syracuse University, and University of California at Berkeley. Gail gave birth to Serena in the apartment she shared with Stuart at the time. Gail's birthing process was unusual. 30 people meditated and played music while she was in labor. After their baby girl was born, the couple didn't name her right away. Eventually, they decided to name their baby girl Serena because there was such a feeling of peace and serenity in the apartment the day she was born. Serena's middle name, Midnight, was decided on because her head came out at 11.59 p.m. on April 4th and her body came out at 12.01 a.m. on April 5th. When Serena was very young, Galen and Stewart's marriage ended. Gail and Serena moved from New York City to sunny California. Eventually, Gail moved in with a man named Lawrence Switzer in his house in the Tilden Park area of Berkeley. Switzer would eventually become Serena's stepfather. Not wanting to be far away from his daughter, Serena's father, Stuart, moved to Berkeley as well. Because her grandfather was so famous, Serena grew up around celebrities. One evening in particular, she met music icon Prince. After meeting, the two of them kept in touch and Prince later offered Serena a job. After graduating from Berkeley High School, Serena never really found her professional calling. For a while, she worked in Hollywood as a makeup artist. She worked on the set of the movie Heartwood, but didn't stay with that career very long. Serena was strikingly beautiful. With brown hair and captivating light eyes, she turned heads wherever she went. Serena was aware of the attention she received based on her appearance, but it made her uncomfortable. A talented writer, Serena wrote about this superficial attention at times. Back on the catamaran, Serena spoke over the phone with her best friend, Stacy Steele. During their conversation, Serena told Stacy that Bison's brother, Kevin, who now went by the name Miles, had shown up at Bison's boat unexpectedly. Both Bison and Serena were caught off guard by Miles' sudden arrival. Serena told her friend that Miles told Bison he wanted to patch things up with them, and that's why he decided to join them during their travels. Bison and Miles had a complicated relationship growing up, and it carried into adulthood. Things immediately became awkward and tense after Miles showed up on the boat unexpectedly. Serena's friend, Stacy, later said about Serena, It was the first time I heard her speak negatively about another human being in the 17 years I knew her. After Miles joined them, Serena noticed a big change in Bison. Around Miles, he became distant and moody. Serena had never seen Bison like that before, and she did not like it. Feeling uncomfortable, Serena told Bison she wanted to go back to New York. Bison pleaded with her to stay. He even tried to figure out a way to get Miles to leave without creating a problem. Bison's brother, Kevin Williams, was born on October 21, 1966, in Fresno, California. Kevin would unofficially change his name to Miles DeBoard later in life. Both Miles and Bison were built similarly, tall, thick, and strong. When he reached adulthood, Miles was 6 foot 8 inches tall and 270 pounds, Bison was 6 foot 10 inches tall and 260 pounds. Like Bison, Miles was a gifted athlete, but his severe asthma limited him. At one point, Bison and Miles' mother, Patricia, had to rush Miles to the emergency room. He had suffered a severe asthma attack. Like his younger brother, Miles was also very intelligent. When he was in the third grade, he read an entire set of world book encyclopedias. Friends of Miles would later say that they thought he never felt like he belonged. It seemed that Miles always lived in his younger brother's shadow. Like Bison, Miles also suffered with depression. Things got bad for him, and he attempted suicide numerous times. A close friend of Miles, Paul White, believed that his friend's issues mostly stemmed from growing up with an abusive stepfather. White said, as a kid, you go through a divorce— You have a stepfather who's jealous of your intellect, your capabilities, and a mother who stands by and watches that happen. Both of these boys were looking for something to fill the void inside of them, a void of feeling loved for who you are, of feeling safe. Some people coming from an environment like that can overcome that kind of background, and some people can't. Miles was a person who could not. Friends also said that Miles tried to separate himself from his family, even from his brother. They also said that Miles was jealous of Bison, even from an early age. While people, especially girls, gravitated toward Bison, Kevin was socially awkward. Both boys were good athletes, but Miles couldn't stay with it because of his asthma. Miles attended several colleges but never graduated. Meanwhile, Bison ended up being first-round NBA pick and became very wealthy. Although Miles was jealous of his younger brother's money and fame, he relied on his little brother for financial support and stability. Bison paid for Miles' medical bills that stemmed from his ER visits. Bison gave his older brother $50,000 cash on two occasions to help him out. Miles could never quite get on the right path with his finances. He was always going to Bison, asking for money, for a new get-rich-quick scheme which always flopped. It was during the early 1990s that Kevin began asking people to call him Miles Weston DeBoard, instead of his given name. The name Miles was taken from Kevin's favorite musician, Miles Davis. He took the name Weston simply because he liked the name. DeBoard was the name of a family member. Bison's family was well taken care of. Bison bought his mother a $350,000 house Ann paid for her education at UCLA. After his rookie season in the NBA, Bison surprised his dad with a gift. Bison received a $25,000 bonus check at the end of the season and spent most of it on a Harley Davidson for his father. He brought the motorcycle to Las Vegas, where Gino was working as a limo driver and a lounge singer. When Bison proudly presented it to his father, Gino looked at it with no emotion and said, "'Son, next time, just give me the cash.'" Understandably, Bison was crushed. He would later disclose to his friends that his father was a coke addict. Gino Williams died of pancreatic cancer in 2008 at the age of 64. Although he was a very generous person by nature, the pressure of supporting his family seemed to take a toll on Bison. At some point, he began trying to separate himself from his family. Perhaps his desire to live on his boat and travel the world was partially motivated by a need to step back from his family, who relied heavily on him. Bison's catamaran Hakuna Matata set sail from Auckland, New Zealand on May 2nd of 2002. On board with Bison and Serena was 32-year-old Bertrand Saldo. Saldo, a highly experienced French boat captain, was on board to lead the Hakuna Matata to its next destination, Honolulu, Hawaii. On May 30th, Bison sent his mother an email. In his email, Bison told his mother that Miles had joined them on the boat, but he was coming back to the United States in early July. Sometime after Bison sent his mother that email, Patricia sent an email back to Bison, telling him about the death of his aunt. Bison never responded to his mother's email. She tried reaching him by satellite phone, but was unable to make contact. On July 8th, Serena left her mother a message on her answering machine. In the message, she told her mother, All is well. In reality, all was not well. In fact, Serena's call to her mother was the last satellite call that ever came from the hakuna matata. If you're a luxury beauty and wellness product junkie like me, then you will love FabFitFun. FabFitFun is a subscription service that promotes self-care. Each season, FabFitFun's experts choose must-have beauty, wellness, and lifestyle products and ship them right to your doorstep. Each box retails for $49.99, but are always guaranteed to have a value of at least $200. I recently got my first FabFitFun box, and I was not disappointed. I got a bottle of Dry Bar hair detangler that I'm constantly fighting my teenage daughter over. Not only does it make my hair easy to brush after washing, it smells so good. I also got a pair of faux fur-lined slippers, a bracelet with a Swarovski crystal, luxury shampoo and conditioner, an eyeshadow palette, and so much more. I also love that I get access to FabFitFun TV with my subscription, where I can watch fitness videos, tutorials for some of the products that FabFitFun offers, recipes, and more. If you're ready to treat yourself or someone you love each season, go to FabFitFun.com and use coupon code MURDERISH for $10 off your first box. That's FABFITFUN and use code MURDERISH for $10 off your first box. Bison and Serena's family and friends became concerned after their communication stopped. Serena's stepfather, Scott Olgren, said that before his stepdaughter's phone calls to her mother suddenly stopped after the July 8th message, they could always count on hearing from her once a week. Scott said of Serena, like clockwork, This is a woman who is connected to her mom at the hip. It was very unusual that we didn't hear from her. Serena also never called her mom to wish her a happy birthday, and that was not like her. Kevin Porter, Bison's friend and business manager, grew concerned after a while because he hadn't heard from Bison since July. Bison always checked in with Porter at least monthly. Bison's agent and friend, Dwight Mainly said later that he hadn't spoken with Bison in over four months. Mainly said about Bison, I don't think that he would just stop communicating with his family and his banker and his best friends. The Hakuna Matata had last been seen in July in Tahiti, after leaving the port of Morea on its way to Honolulu, Hawaii. By August, a month after the last communication from Serena, none of Bison, Serena, or Captain Saldo's loved ones had heard from them. In late August, the U.S. Coast Guard and the Tahiti Search and Rescue began searching for the Hukuna Matata with no success. A distress bulletin was sent out to all ships within a thousand-mile radius of Tahiti to be on the lookout for Hukuna Matata. Captain Saldo had not filed a voyage plan with the Coast Guard, which was going to make it much harder to find the boat. It was strange for a captain of Saldo's experience to fail to do something so routine. The Coast Guard said the boat did have an emergency distress beacon on it, but it couldn't be detected because it had never been activated. The Coast Guard tried contacting Hakuna Matata, both by phone and radio, but no responses were ever received. Nearly two months since anyone had heard from those aboard the Hakuna Matata, some strange activity in Bison's bank account was discovered. On Friday, August 31st, Kevin Porter realized that a check in the amount of $152,000 had been written from Bison's account. As he looked into it, Porter realized that something didn't look right. He had been Bison's business manager for almost a decade, and he was very familiar with how Bison usually paid for things. Bison almost always paid for things with credit cards. If not credit cards, then he'd pay by certified check. Bison never used personal checks, but here was a personal check for over $152,000. The check was payable to Certified Mint, a coin dealer in Phoenix, Arizona. Along with the check were instructions to deliver the package to a mailbox in Miami, Florida. Porter called Bison's bank to inquire further. On this phone call, the banker told Porter that the signature on the check did not match Bison's. Porter also discovered that the check had an address for a mailboxes etc. location in Miami. Porter knew that Bison had not rented a mailbox at this location. Porter continued digging into the matter. His next phone call was to Certified Mint, the company to which the personal check was made payable. During this call, Porter found out that the one hundred and fifty-two thousand dollar order was for golden eagle coins, and they were purchased by a man claiming to be Brian Williams, Bison's birth name. By the time Porter contacted Certified Mint, the check had been cashed, but the coins had not been shipped. On September 3rd, the man who claimed to be Brian Williams called the coin dealer in Phoenix to tell them he was coming into town and he wanted to pick up the coins instead of having them mailed to Miami. The man said he'd be there in two days. Certified Mint immediately informed Kevin Porter of this. Porter, along with Bison and Miles' mother, Patricia, flew to Phoenix the very next day. At the same time, Bison's bank notified the Phoenix Police Department that a man who had forged a check for $152,000 was coming in to pick up coins at Certified Mint. A plan was quickly developed. Law enforcement would be ready and waiting to meet the man claiming to be Brian Williams. The following day, on September 5th, a man showed up at Certified Mint. He introduced himself as Brian Williams. The man showed the coin dealer Brian Williams' passport to prove his identity. The dealer, however, knew this was not Brian Williams. The Phoenix police quickly stepped in and confronted the man and then arrested him. When searched, police found two of Brian Williams' or Bison's credit cards in his possession in what surely was a shock to everyone involved in the investigation. The man was later identified as Miles DeBoard, Bison's older brother. When questioned by authorities, Miles did not provide any information about Bison, Serena, or Captain Soldo, who'd been missing for two long months. Not having anything on which to hold him, police had no option but to release Miles after questioning. After leaving the interrogation, Miles headed for the airport and flew to Palo Alto in Northern California. Two days later, the FBI issued an arrest warrant for Miles DeBoard, a.k.a. Kevin Williams, for the attempted identity theft of his brother, Bison Dale, a.k.a. Brian Williams. The FBI sent agents to San Francisco, Miles's last place of residence, before he left to join Bison on his voyage. When FBI agents arrived in San Francisco, Miles could not be located. Patricia Williams said that her son had called her shortly after the news outlets caught wind of Bison's disappearance. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, Patricia said that Miles told her, Mom, I just need you to believe me. I wouldn't hurt my brother. I need to know that you love me before I die. I can't go to prison. You know my personality is the type that I can't survive in prison. Nobody will believe my story. With a suspect being identified, and two months gone by with no sign of the missing three, concern and worry had turned into sheer panic. At this time, Bison, Serena, and Captain Saldo were all reported as missing persons. It was initially reported that the Hakuna Matata had two other crew members aboard, but it was later determined that Captain Saldo was the only crew member aboard. The confusion may have come due to changes in the crew during the voyage. Captain Saldo had been hired in mid-June and was not the original captain of the boat. Another crew member had come on board during the voyage, but left not long after Miles arrived. Authorities would later find out from some of Captain Saldo's friends that he was uneasy about the voyage after Miles arrived on the boat. He was having second thoughts about taking the long trip from Tahiti to Hawaii, but ultimately, Captain Saldo decided to continue on because the $4,000 per month pay was very appealing. Jean-Marie Lebeau, another boat captain, said that Captain Saldo told him one afternoon shortly after the boat left that Miles was difficult to deal with. LeBeau said, Bertrand said Kevin was a strange guy. Kevin acted like he was an important guy and everything had to be very fast. He acted crazy. Kevin Porter and Bison met while the two of them were in college. After Bison was drafted, Porter became his business manager. He knew Miles well and said that the interactions between the two brothers were amicable for the most part. He did say, however, that there were small verbal altercations. Porter said about Bison and Miles's relationship, they were always out to establish who was the alpha, who was the top dog. On September 11th, Miles phoned his mother again. This time, he called to tell her that he was going to kill himself. Patricia later told the Los Angeles Times, I just assumed when that call ended that it was the last time I would talk to him. I told him I couldn't do anything about our past, but that I could do something that moment, and that was to convey my love for him. Patricia's statement seems to give insight into how this tragedy came to be. Certain aspects about their past may have created the dysfunctional dynamic between Miles and Bison. Nobody could have imagined, however, that it would all come to an end in such a horrific way. Not knowing what to do after receiving that dire phone call from Miles, Patricia called Bison's friend, Patrick Byrne. Byrne immediately flew to Phoenix to join Kevin Porter. Porter was still in Phoenix working with the police and certified mint to work out the forged check situation. When Byrne arrived in Phoenix, Porter gave him the cell phone number that Miles had given certified mint when he provided them with his information for the coin delivery to Miami. Byrne called the phone number, and much to his surprise, Miles answered. Byrne begged Miles to tell him what happened to Bison. Byrne was desperate for answers, and in the moment, he told Miles he'd give him the $150,000 he had attempted to get with the forged check. Byrne told Miles he'd meet him in Mexico and bring the money in a suitcase. After that phone call, Patrick Byrne immediately went to Mexico to try to find Miles. Byrne had no idea where Miles could be, but he knew there weren't a lot of African-American men of his size in Tijuana, Mexico. If Miles was in Tijuana, Byrne figured he would stand out amongst everyone else. Byrne began asking around, hoping to get lucky. Not long after arriving in Mexico, Byrne got a phone call. It was the police, and the news they delivered was not the news Byrne or anyone had been hoping for. Police informed Byrne that Bison's boat had been located in Tahiti. The boat was discovered the day after Miles phoned his mother and told her he was going to kill himself. When Bison's boat was discovered, there were no passengers aboard and no sign of survivors. Upon this discovery, police believed that Bison, Serena, and Captain Saldo were dead. Byrne called Patricia to tell her the news, and then he left Mexico. On Thursday, September 12th, law enforcement in French Polynesia received a call from a boat captain who told them he saw a boat he recognized. The boat was docked in a marina in Terraveo, a small village in Tahiti. Police responded to the marina, and sure enough, the boat in question was Bison's Catamaran. The boat had been docked in the marina for weeks. Michael Morodi, the chief prosecutor in the area, said the boat had been able to sit for so long without drawing attention because many tourists leave their boats for long periods while they're visiting the island. When the boat was searched, it looked quite different than it had just weeks before. The boat had been partially repainted, and the name that Bison had given it, Hakuna Matata, was painted over. The boat had been renamed Arabella. Later, Several witnesses would identify Miles as the person who brought the boat into Tereveo on July 16th, eight days after the last communication was received by anyone aboard the boat. Witnesses reported that Miles was alone when he docked the boat in Terraveo. Other witnesses reported seeing Miles placing items into garbage bags and throwing them into the water. Divers would later recover the garbage bags, and inside, they found clothing and diving suits. Also during the search, authorities discovered holes in the boat that had been repaired and painted over. At the time, they weren't able to determine whether the holes had been made by bullets or from the boat scraping against something. Two residents told authorities that on July 20th, they drove Miles from Terraveo to a location in Tahiti so he could make a flight to Los Angeles, California. Calls made from the boat's satellite phone around the last time that Bison, Serena, or Captain Saldo were heard from were believed to have been made near Maieo, a small island near Tahiti. This helped authorities narrow the time frame down to determine when Bison, Serena, and Captain Saldo disappeared. Based on this evidence, authorities determined that the three disappeared sometime between July 8th when Serena left the message on her mother's answering machine and July 16th when Miles docked the boat by himself in Tarraveo. The day after Bison's boat was discovered, Mexican authorities entered a hotel room in Tijuana, Mexico. They had been staking out the room for a while. Upon entering the hotel room, they found clothing and other items belonging to Miles, but Miles was nowhere to be found. Authorities left the hotel room and waited to see if anyone would show up at the hotel room, but nobody did. Two days later, on September 15th, an unresponsive man was brought from Tijuana across the Mexican border and dropped off at Scripps Memorial Hospital in Chula Vista, California. The man was dropped off by a friend who wouldn't identify himself. It appeared the patient had overdosed. The unresponsive man had no identification on him, and the friend didn't stay or provide any information on the patient. Hospital staff registered the patient as a John Doe. Eventually, fingerprints were taken and the man was identified as Miles DeBoard, a.k.a. Kevin Williams. Miles was alive but in very poor condition. He was in a coma. With Miles in the hospital, the investigation into the missing people continued. Investigators eventually questioned Miles's girlfriend, Erica Weiss, who told them she had seen Miles on July 8th in Tahiti. This was the same day Serena left a final message on her mother's answering machine. Miles and Erica had lived together for a time in Palo Alto, California. Erica told investigators that Miles invited her to join him on Bison's boat, so she flew to Tahiti to meet him, Bison, and Serena. However, when she arrived in Tahiti, Miles was the only person there. Erica said that Miles told her that his brother and Serena had gone to another island by themselves. Erica said she had no reason to think that Miles was lying or that anything was wrong. In an interview with ESPN's Tim Cohn, during the week that Erica stayed with Miles in Tahiti, she said she didn't notice anything strange about his behavior. Erica said that she and Miles did get into some arguments saying, you have to remember, we had been separated for about five months. While it's unclear when and where Miles opened up to Erica about Bison, Serena, and Captain Saldo, at some point, according to Erica, Miles told her that all three of them were dead. Some reports have Miles disclosing this information to Erica during their time in Tahiti in July. Other reports state that Miles told Erica they were dead while he was visiting her in Palo Alto in September, two months after they had gone missing. Miles gave Erica different versions of what happened on the boat. One version Miles gave was that he and Bison got into an argument after the boat left the island of Morea. He said Serena tried to get in between the two brothers to break them up, at which time she was accidentally knocked down onto the deck. Miles said she hit her head on a metal hitch. In this version of the story, Serena's fall was fatal due to the wound she sustained on her head from the metal hitch. After Serena fell, Miles said the fight between him and Bison escalated, and according to Miles, he killed his brother in self-defense. With Captain Saldo being a witness, Miles believed that he had to kill him. Miles told Erica that he threw the three lifeless bodies overboard and managed to bring the boat in by himself. After Miles opened up to Erica and told her the first version of what happened on the boat, She told investigators that on September 7th, she drove Miles from San Francisco to the U.S. Mexican border. During their drive, Erica said that Miles now told her that Serena and Captain Saldo both tried to break up the fight between him and his brother. According to Miles, both Serena and Captain Saldo were knocked down during their attempt to break up the fight. Miles told Erica that Captain Saldo was unhurt, but Serena died after hitting her head. Miles said that Captain Saldo wanted to call for help, but Bison refused. Miles said that when Captain Saldo insisted that he contact authorities over the radio, Bison went into a rage, picked up a wrench, and killed Captain Saldo by hitting him over the head. Miles said that Bison then turned to him to kill him, but Miles grabbed Bison's gun and shot his brother in self-defense. Miles said he then got rid of the bodies by tying weights on them and throwing them overboard. After driving Miles to the border, Erica called the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department to tell them what Miles told her. The Sheriff's Department notified the FBI, who then sent agents to Tahiti to look for the victims. At the same time, the FBI sent agents to Mexico to try to find Miles, which eventually led them to stake out a hotel room that turned out to be where Miles was staying. Back at Scripps Memorial Hospital, Miles remained in a coma. He had been placed under arrest, and authorities were waiting to extradite him back to Phoenix to face charges. Miles, however, would never face any charges. Doctors determined that Miles would never regain consciousness. They broke the news to Patricia Williams. On Thursday morning, September 26th, Patricia, along with several family members and friends, prayed at Miles' bedside. At 10 a.m. that day, doctors took him off of life support. Miles DeBoer died at 8 p.m. the following day. He was 35 years old. The official diagnosis Miles received was suicide attempt with hypoglycemic brain damage with subsequent discontinuation of life support. It was later determined that Miles had gone to a beach in Tijuana, injected himself with a large dose of insulin, and laid down on the beach to die. When Miles' autopsy report was released, the toxicology report indicated that he tested positive for cocaine, opiates, depressants, and anti-anxiety medications, which indicated morphine and or heroin. The report also stated that Miles' right lung was congested, and that he had suffered contusions on his head, torso, and extremities, as well as bruises on his chest, shoulder, shin, and arm. He also had scabs on his arms and legs. The medical examiner, Dr. Jonathan Lucas, could not give a cause of death, saying, The cause of death is best listed as undetermined. On Saturday, October 12th, a private memorial service was held for Bison and Miles at Trinity Baptist Church in West Los Angeles. The Reverend Eugene Marzette, a cousin of the Williams family, led the service before a crowd of 250 mourners. Pictures of both brothers adorned the church. They were placed along the aisles and on the tables. There were pictures of Miles and Bison as children and all the way up to adulthood. A program which was given to attendees had a picture of Bison and Miles as young boys. The caption read, Two brothers, two loved, two missed. Friends and family spoke at the service, but no mention was made of how either of their lives ended. Patricia Williams asked those in attendance to remember the good in both Bison and Miles, saying, We live in such a dark time. My sons are dead because we live in such a dark time. Miles's childhood friend, Paul White, spoke about their close friendship, saying, Miles was one of the most intelligent persons I have ever met. He was interested in math, history, and he was an extremely funny man. He had keen insight into the human condition. Miles was a gentle man, sometimes too gentle. Miles and I shared freely. There were no barriers. Family friend Louis Merrick described the relationship between the two brothers, saying, They were brothers in life and brothers in death, yet we must always remember there are two sides of the same coin. Searching for that unknown edge in life, they forgot to look home. The greatest edge you can find in life is to stand in the protective shadow of those who love you. I call out the names of Brian Carson Williams and Kevin Eugene Williams. Brothers in life and now, yes, brothers in death, sons to us all. A double sadness is born today because two children are dead. Bison died without a will. Given that he was single with no children, a probate court named Patricia Williams as the conservator of his estate. This meant that she could only spend money from her son's estate for certain purposes, such as to pay bills or debts. Patricia had plans to travel to Tahiti to try to procure a death certificate for Bison, as that would help in her effort to have a court name her as the executor of her son's estate. As executor, Patricia would be allowed to disperse Bison's money as she saw fit. Bison's friends did not believe the story Miles had told his girlfriend about the fight on the boat, which allegedly led to the three deaths. In Miles' account of what happened, he had deflected most of the blame onto Bison, making himself the victim. Kevin Porter called it a bunch of baloney. Kevin Byrne didn't even attempt to hold back, saying, It's no mystery what happened on that boat. Kevin was a cockroach. He was jealous and envious of his brother. He resented that his younger brother was so successful. One possible motive for Miles murdering his brother is that he may have believed that Bison was going to put an end to supporting him. Kevin Porter told the Phoenix police that Bison had spoken with him about cutting Miles off because he wouldn't stop coming to him, asking for money to support his get-rich-quick schemes that never panned out. Patricia Williams told Phoenix police that her eldest son was capable of extremely violent behavior when he does not get his way, and that he had been jealous of his brother's money and success. Miles had even commented on this when he was arrested in Phoenix. Miles said to police, Brian got all the luck and the talent in the family. Not long after Miles died, investigators gave up looking for the bodies of Bison, Serena, and Captain Saldo. The area of water where they could be was too large, and parts were too deep and dangerous to send divers. Since all of the victims and the only witness are all dead, it's very likely we will never know exactly what happened on that fateful trip aboard the Hakuna Matata. All that is known are Miles's two versions of what happened, neither of which are believable according to Bison's friends and the FBI agents who worked the case. Retired FBI agent Elizabeth Castaneda said that the stories Miles told Erica were the only versions on record and due to that, this is the only official account of what happened. Agent Castaneda went on to say about Miles's stories, Forensically, it didn't pan out. According to him, Dele struck the captain in the head with a wrench. That's going to cause blood spatter. The top of the area where they fought had a ceiling. There was nothing there. It just didn't make sense. Castaneda and the rest of the FBI have developed a theory as to what they believe actually happened. And their theory is even more chilling than the stories Miles told Erica. Castaneda said the official story is close to the truth, but there are problems because Miles' story fails to explain why there was no blood or bullet holes found in the boat. There were holes in the boat that had been repaired and painted over. These holes were originally thought to have been bullet holes. But upon closer examination, the holes were determined to have been scrapes made by Miles as he attempted to get the boat into port by himself. Authorities verified that Miles took the boat in for repairs after docking it at Terraveo. Castaneda believes that Miles forced his brother, Serena, and Captain Saldo into the water, alive and away from land, to let the sharks, exposure, or dehydration kill them. Castaneda said, I think Miles put them in the water at gunpoint in the middle of nowhere, and then he left them there. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can also leave the show a rating and review in your favorite podcast listening app. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another great way to support it. This episode was made possible by BetterHelp and FabFitFun. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Don't forget to check out my Patreon service if you'd like to get access to exclusive bonus content, Murderish goodie packages, and have a portion of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Just go to patreon.com murderish for more details. That's patreon.com murderish. If you want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish, head over to my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources, including but not limited to news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes, someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information I draw from to help tell these stories. I wanna say thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found in episode notes, which are accessible from any podcast player. I'm currently having a website built, and when it's done, episode source material and all kinds of other show information can be found there if you have any comments or questions email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com that's murderish j-a-m-i at gmail.com murderish is mixed and mastered by john Buchanis of audio editing solutions music in this episode was composed by nico of we talk of dreams this episode was researched and written by murderish researcher steve field as always ishers Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.